Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. In this episode, we are introducing a new series on The Soul of the Nation, dedicated to exploring the historical roots, the ideas, and the political dangers posed by white Christian nationalism, an ideology on the rise in our country. We saw white Christian nationalism on display during the insurrection in the U.S. Capitol, where violent white supremacists carried signs that said, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president, and prayed on the floor of the U.S. Senate that God would allow them to send a message to all the tyrants, the communists, and the globalists that this is our nation and not theirs. What white Christian nationalists mean by their nation is clear. It is an old ideology undergirded by an old heresy rooted in America's original sin, the sin of white supremacy. I would say that white Christian nationalism is the single greatest threat to democracy in America and to the integrity of the Christian witness. In the words of retired General Michael Flynn, a MAGA Republican who served in the Trump administration and is now a leader in the white Christian nationalist movement, the people whose votes they are trying to suppress walk like us and talk like us, but they do not want what we want. So what is white Christian nationalism? Where did the ideas that white Christian nationalists espouse come from? And how can we prevent them from getting what they want? During this series of episodes on white Christian nationalism, we will answer those questions by talking to sociologists who have studied the movement, journalists who have covered it, and Christian leaders who are fighting it. I hope you'll listen and subscribe to this series and let us know your thoughts by commenting on the platforms where you listen. This week on the podcast, we bring you the audio of a special event we held at Georgetown University on October 26th. The event was titled, How White Christian Nationalism Threatens Our Democracy. Our guests included three of the most important people to understanding the dangers of white Christian nationalism. They are the Reverend Michael Bruce Curry, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Amanda Tyler, executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee, and a lead organizer of the group Christians Against Christian Nationalism and Samuel Perry, a sociologist at the University of Oklahoma, who has written two books on white Christian nationalism and is one of the nation's leading academic experts on the movement. At the event, which has been viewed by thousands of people online, we spoke about the forces that drive white Christian nationalism, whether it's best understood as a religious or a political movement, and what to make of Christian nationalist events like the Reawaken America tour where participants are getting baptized in which the Washington Post called a traveling carnival of misinformation that merges entertainment, politics, and theology. This episode begins with me asking Professor Perry to define white Christian nationalism. So, Dr. Sam Perry, can I call you Sam? Sure, please. So, Sam, (laughs) white Christian nationalism is... I would say, a slippery concept, yeah. uh, in part because their beliefs and actions often seem so contradictory. Help us understand this. Um, I think the name spells its heresy. 
So how is it white, how Christian, and how nationalistic? The issue of definitions is actually uh, extremely important. And whenever we, we talk about white Christian nationalism, I want to be very clear about what exactly we're defining. Because I, what I don't want to do, and I think this has uh, unfortunately been the case as, as the concept itself has taken on popularity, it, it can become even more slippery and it starts to be used for any kind of religion and politics, which is not what we want to convey. We don't want to try to discourage people from voting their values or to try to tell Christians, hey, you need to hang your faith at the door uh, and not bring that into politics, as if that was even possible. Uh, in fact, that, is, that has been a, an, an accusation. Uh, a week and a half ago, the Family Research Council uh, uh, along with uh, leaders like Tony Perkins, Michelle Bachman, uh, some other leaders that they had on stage, they, they hosted an event where they talked about the rise of this term white Christian nationalism or Christian nationalism. Uh, and in their advertising materials, they said that this term has been used uh, to try to suppress the votes of conservative Christians. Uh, so they actually believe that, that is, it is used to try to discourage um, any, any conservative Christians from, from voting. That's not what we want to do. Uh, we want to be very clear about what we mean. So how is it white? How is it Christian? How is it nationalist? So um, uh, I actually think white Christian nationalism is best understood as, as at least three things. We could talk about it three different things. Uh, first, it is an ideology uh, that idealizes and advocates a fusion of American civic life with a very particular kind of Christianity. And that is a, a Christianity that isn't characterized by, say, giving my life to Jesus or wanting to be a good disciple, but it is, it is about white Christian ethnoculture, a Christian subculture that characterizes people like us, uh, that, that, that we have been in charge and that we are the rightful uh, rulers and, and our culture should hold sway and, our, and should be institutionalized uh, in American political life. Uh, it is also a political strategy and increasingly a political strategy that is leveraged by people who don't necessarily have to believe the ideology. So for example, a good example of this is I think is Trump. I think it's fair to say, I don't mean to be hypercritical, but I think it's fair to say that Trump probably doesn't believe much of anything other than, you know, he believes in winning, he believes in his own uh, influence, and yet he is more than willing to leverage white Christian nationalist rhetoric to be able to mobilize those audiences who do believe that. Now, why is it white? Like, let me, let me make sure I'm clear about that. Oftentimes, we find in our surveys that people of color affirm our, state, our questions that we ask about Christian nationalist ideology uh, they affirm those statements with the same regularity that white Americans do. It's not just a white thing. But we find consistently that when white Americans tick the box on these kinds of ideologies, these kinds of beliefs, that America is a Christian nation, we should institutionalize it as such, that we should get back to our Christian heritage, Christian values, no separation of church and state, those kinds of things. It means something fundamentally different for white Americans than it does for people of color, especially African Americans. Uh, for white Americans, it seems to connect with this idea of nostalgia, for an earlier time where the right people were in charge, where the right cultural values held sway. When African-Americans affirm those same kinds of questions, it does not seem to indicate that they want to go back to an earlier time where the right people were in charge or have those values held sway. It, it is more aspirational. Uh, it seems to, to evoke the idea that a, America should be, should have been uh, a nation that valued justice, that valued equality, but never quite became that. And so uh, what makes it white? It, it seems to be, this ideology at least, it seems to be organized, this idea that America is founded by and for people who are shaped by white Christian ethnoculture. So picking up on that, Bishop Curry, uh, you're a black man in America and a church leader who grew up in the South. So I want to ask you how white Christian nationalism has personally affected your life. How big a threat is it to you and your country? And what do you fear most about? Well, I, I think the... Um what we're describing as white Christian nationalism, let me, let me frame it that way, mm -hmm. um, is not conservative Christianity. Uh, obviously, it's not liberal Christianity either. Mm -hmm. What we're actually describing is an ideology that's not really a religion. Mm 
but it looks like a religion and uses, invokes language and symbols that have religious trappings. Mm-hmm. So I want to distinguish between genuine evangelicals, conservative Christians who are conservative. Believe it or not, when you get Jesus in your heart, you could turn out to be a Republican <laughs> as well as a Democrat. <laughs> you see, there's a, Jesus isn't about that. I mean, there's some values that come with that, but how you apply those in your life can vary. What we're describing and what, what, what the professor is really getting at is um, something that has been around a long time. Now, I think some innocent people are being fooled by it. Let me be clear about that. It's been around a long time. Um, let us not forget that, that, that chattel slavery in America was justified by pro-slavery Christian-sounding voices. Right. Now, when you take those arguments and lay them alongside Jesus of Nazareth, let's just take Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just picking one passage. <laughs> or let's just take Luke 4. Or let's just take Matthew 25. Or let's just take all four of the Gospels. Lay the image of Jesus of Nazareth that you see there alongside the arguments that were used to maintain slavery, and you will see a wide gap that cannot be closed. Mm-hmm. The same is true with, if you look at the complex of white Christian nationalism, as an ideology, you lay it alongside Jesus of Nazareth, and we're not even talking about the same thing. So that's why um, I really do want, I think it's important to make a distinction, and that's what you've done, uh, between what is an ideology, which in America you have the right to hold, but I would argue you don't have the right to claim that it's Christian. If you want to exclude folk, if you don't want to live what Jesus was real clear, you shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. That's it. I mean, he just said everything Moses was talking about. That's, what, that's it. Now, does this sound like, like loving neighbor? No. If I love my neighbor, I want my neighbor to be as safe and secure as I am. I want my neighbor to have the same rights that I do. But once upon a time, and I remember my grandma talking about this from eastern North Carolina. Mm-hmm. She talked about the hooded man. And when I was a little kid, I didn't know what grandma was talking about, the hooded man. I didn't know what she was talking about. She was talking about the Klan brothers. They claimed to be Christian. Now, they, was that Christianity? Really? Was that Christian? Lay that next to Jesus. And, and, and you begin to discover that we're not talking about a religious perspective at all. We actually are talking about an ideology that is cloaked in religious language and that uses religious symbols. Um, but that actually isn't that at all. And I think part of our task, and, 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 and these guys are better at it than I am, but part of our task is to help normal people, the sensible center, um, to, to be clear that, wait a minute, Christianity is about the, the, the way of Jesus of Nazareth. It is about the way of living love in our lives for real. And anything that's not that is not Christianity. It can be something else. I mean, America, you've got a right to your opinion. Yes. Right or wrong, you've got a right to it. But it's not that. And so I, I, just, I just think right on target. But I want to frame this as really not religion at all, hmm. but ideology. In fact, it's the use and abuse of religion mm-hmm. for ideology or for an ethnic culture or for a political agenda. Yeah. Right? I've often struck by how a lot of new white Christian nationalists weren't before practicing people of faith at all, but now they're white Christian nationalists. So, so Amanda, you have studied this as much as anybody, your, your organization. In fact, you lead a group called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. I love that title. I want to ask you, is white Christian nationalism a bigger threat to our democracy or to the churches or both? And is it, as Bishop Curry was suggesting, mainly a political movement or a religious movement, Mm -hmm. or both? Well, I'm going to add another threat 
It's a, it's a huge threat. I think I agree with you that it's the biggest threat to our democracy today. I think it's a huge threat to a faithful Christian life and to a flourishing Christianity in this country. And I think it's the single biggest threat to religious freedom for all that we face in America today. Because, that, because Christian nationalism as a political ideology and a cultural framework creates second-class citizens for everyone who's not Christian right. in their view. And so I think we can boil mm-hmm. down every threat to religious freedom into mm-hmm. that foundational value that yeah. we that can unite us as Americans. You know, Christianity cannot and does not unite us as Americans. But what can unite us as Americans is this foundational value that our belonging in American culture and society will never be premised on what we believe or how we practice or how we identify religiously or even if we identify as a religious person. Right. So I, I think we have to be very clear that these are threats to all of these um, things that we hold dear as Americans, as Christians, and as people who value religious freedom. I do think that it is primarily a political movement, and I agree that we have to distinguish it from Christianity. And I think based on just what you were saying about how complicit the church was in slavery, in segregation, in lynchings, in all of those things that came, that that we have to acknowledge that American Christianity has been compromised by Christian nationalism for centuries. And so I would love to be able to completely separate the two and say that they have nothing to do with each other, and I think we cannot do that. And that's one of the things we are trying to do at Christians Against Christian Nationalism is ask individual Christians and congregations to be very self-critical and to examine their own theologies and religious practices and see how much has Christian nationalism impacted my understanding of Christianity. Because if we don't get right with our own theologies and our own practice first, we won't be able to be the kind of witness we need to the rest of the world to dismantle Christian nationalism. Indeed. Now, Sam, you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post this week, some of you probably read, uh, that was, is white Christian nationalism growing or declining? And you said your answer was both. How is it both declining and growing at the same time? Yeah. Uh, So we've been tracking Christian nationalist ideology for a number of years now. We have data that we've asked similar questions for uh, about 15 years. Uh, These are people who started these questions earlier, and we've carried these on just to see how this is is changing. Uh, And we found that since about 2017, the percentage of Americans who say that the the federal government should declare us a Christian nation has declined by about 10%, from about uh, 30% to 20% uh, most recently. That's not a huge drop, but we have several indicators. Pew Data has, uh, has shown this as well. There are several indicators that in the general population, explicit... Uh, affirming of Christian nationalist ideology among just average people seems to be declining somewhat. Um, now, does that mean that you know, Christian nationalism is it's kind of it's on its dying gasp or, 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 or about to leave? No, uh, because uh, polarization uh, is such to where Christian nationalism as an ideology, as a political strategy and as an identity has become a more central facet of American politics, even as grassroots Americans are backing away from explicit identification with those ideologies, you've got, uh, it has become an even greater part of the Republican Party platform, of, of the kind of rhetoric that conservative politicians who are trying to appeal to a reactionary white Christian base who is very anxious and very uh, angry, 
to be able to use those kinds of identifying rhetorics, that, that, that kind of language of Christian nationals, the idea that our heritage is, heritage is being stolen from us, that we need to go back to an earlier time, to use that kind of explicit rhetoric, uh, that has become a, a more central focus of our, of our politics. And again, this, this phenomenon, I mean, I, I think this question actually goes into what is, what is old about Christian nationalism and what is new. Uh, so let's, let me talk about that for a second. What is old is, is, is exactly what the bishop was talking about. This ideology, and, and, and Amanda, is centuries old. This ideology that America is for people like us, and they are, they are white, they are Christian, they are native-born. Um, but what we see as new is actually how, how closely tied it is now to uh, political strategy and rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, is, that is a new thing, how explicit uh, the language of us versus them, Christian, anti-Christian persecution, that we are uh, white Americans and Christians are, are being persecuted and attacked, that we need to take our country back. That is more explicit. But also the identification with the label itself, that uh, people can write books arguing for Christian nationalism by name, that people can take to Twitter. Politicians can take to Twitter and say, the Republican Party ought to be the party of Christian nationalism. That is a new thing. Uh, and so the more that that becomes the, uh, say, uh, Republican partisanship or conservative ideological identity becomes... Uh, coalesced around that identity of Christian nationalists, then that becomes something that uh, its influence belies the shrinking numbers, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's become politicized right. and strategized, and I would say even weaponized. Yes. Yeah. And that's the new dimension here. So, uh, Bishop Curry, you and I have been fighting this kind of stuff together for a long time, and yet this kind of stuff keeps growing. <laughs> so... I wonder sometimes, uh, what are we doing wrong? Or what's the story that we need? Or you and I are involved in this movement called Reclaiming Jesus. And I heard you say something about that a few moments ago. Isn't coming back to that the only way to deal with politicized Mm -hmm. religion? Mm -hmm. What do we do different and how can we go forward now uh, in a better way? You know, I I do think... um, um, I think on the one hand there, it, it's always important um, whenever um, any form of, of um, exclusion, um, I'm hedging from the word bigotry because that's a little bit narrowly right. focused, but any form, anything that excludes other folk, anything that puts other folk down, even implicitly, right. um, anything like that, People of decency and goodwill, whether they're Christian, Jews, Muslim, whatever they are, people of decency and goodwill must stand up and must name it. Silence is complicity. Mm -hmm. And silence creates a context in which something like that can grow. And when something like that can grow and is allowed to grow, um, it is like kudzu. I mean, y'all don't have kudzu up north, but anybody know about kudzu? I mean, man, I mean, you got to get a goat to take care of gut kudzu. That's about the only thing that'll stop it. I mean, and, and it, it, it just starts spreading. I mean, it just starts spreading. So it has to be, you've got to confront, name it. Um, when a synagogue is assaulted, Christians, Muslims, people of goodwill must stand up and say, this is not the way we want to be. When, you know, and on and I can just go down the list. Um, when LGBTQ folk are um, attacked, when trans folk are attacked, People of decency and goodwill, no matter what your political, must stand up and speak up. Silence creates an atmosphere um, for the negative to grow. It really does. So I think that that's one thing. I think that we have to have ecumenical, interfaith, uh, bipartisan, multiracial, multicultural, multireligious coalitions of people who just want to stand up for human kindness and decency. Mm-hmm. You know, so we yeah. got to do that. On the other hand, I do think there does have to be. Um, the kind of 
education is a weak word, but the kind of education that brings this conversation to the public to awareness, that there is a counter narrative. There actually is a way of being Christian that is not exclusive, that is not about putting folk down, that you may vote your way and I may vote my way based on our values and our own discernment, that there is that kind. But that kind of Christianity, see, that's why I think reclaiming Jesus was significant because sometimes you hear folks saying, uh, this is Christianity and they ain't saying nothing about Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> now, I mean, you got to get real at some point and say, hold on, let's let's talk about the brother. He, he's supposed to be the Lord. Let's let him be the Lord. <laughs> and so claiming and reclaiming that and just lifting up. And we talked about the power of the text. Yeah. Lift up the text of the New Testament, specifically the four Gospels. Let, let Jesus speak. Let Remember that thing, let your fingers do the walking through the yellow pages years ago? Um, Somebody just walk through the text a little bit and let Jesus talk. And then let's lay Jesus aside anything that claims to be Christian. And if it doesn't match up, if it doesn't match up, then we say, well, that's not Christianity. It may be your opinion. You've got a right to your opinion in this country. And I think that kind of education of, of, of just normal people. I mean, I say normal. I'm not, I don't mean anybody's abnormal. But just, just the kind of the normal folk who go to church, who may be, look, I'm, I'm the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. I know full well there are Republicans and Democrats in the Episcopal Church. <laughs> I don't even need a survey to find that out. I, yeah, I know that. Um, but I'm here to tell you, sensible, good, decent people who are really just trying to be Christian, right. when they see it, they'll say, ah, I thought that's what it was, but I was I'm beginning to hear some other things that seem like a different narrative. Mm-hmm. Help them, that kind of education, the kind of thing you're doing, and the kind of thing you're doing we need more of that. Um, and, and people like me and ordinary clergy, normal clergy in congregations to begin to re-educate ourselves to this Jesus of Nazareth and his way of love as God's way of life. And when we do that, then we can begin to discern, like the New Testament says in 1 John, test the spirits to see whether they be of God or not. Mm-hmm. So a good story beats a good argument. Every so day. if we just argue about this forever... We're going to be stuck in those little binary categories. Mm-hmm. So what's the story that gets us out of those categories? Yeah. So Amanda, uh, you have warned there's been a dramatic uptick in violent acts inspired by white Christian nationalism, uh, which has been more and more openly embraced. Now we see people with T-shirts, uh, even members of Congress with T-shirts. I'm a white Christian nationalist. Mm-hmm becoming a t-shirt movement as well, right? So um, uh, these are threats. They are political threats. They are violent threats. Uh, Tell us what you see going on around this during these midterm elections and that whole conversation, the campaigns. Um, I've been reading about this so-called Reawaken America tour. Uh, People being baptized, almost like political baptisms which we quite haven't seen before. The Washington Post calls, calls this a traveling carnival of misinformation that merges entertainment, politics, and theology. Mm-hmm. So what do you see going on, particularly around this whole midterm election time? Yeah, and, and before I hit the midterms, you, you bring up violence, and I have to say that tomorrow is a really somber anniversary. It's the four-year anniversary of what remains the deadliest attack on Jews in America ever the shooting at uh, Tree of Life Synagogue. And it was that event coming after other deadly events that really spurred us to action um, to create Christians against Christian nationalism. 
the, the fact that people were losing their lives when this ideology was in the hands of violent extremists, right. which makes what we're seeing in the midterm elections so irresponsible because we know what this can lead to. Um, this is not just about electing certain candidates to office, but people's lives are on the line. This Reawaken America tour has been on the road now for almost a year. Uh, it first caught my attention last November when there was an event in San Antonio, Texas, where uh, Michael Flynn uh, said the quiet part out loud. He said, you know, we're one nation under God. We should have one religion, one, one nation under God, one religion under God. So we see what the aim is. This isn't just about repeating lines of civil religion. This is about leading to a theocracy, about one version of Christianity being taken over by the, by the government. Um, and so we've seen this kind of uh, you know, extremist rhetoric combined with misinformation, election lies, uh, COVID lies, and put all in these huge arenas and often in houses of worship. And it, it really is incredibly irresponsible to be exploiting this as a political strategy. Um, and I think we are at a point uh, that I fear that Christian nationalism is, is going to be normalized. And I think the only thing that we can that can stop it is for normal people, you know, to stand up and to say this is not who we are. This is not who we want to be, either as Americans or for those of us who are Christians as Christians and to do something about it. And it would be great to have some political leadership doing this as well. You know, what's so alarming is when you have someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene saying the Republican Party should be the party of Christian nationalism. We didn't have leaders from the Republican Party right. saying, no, we shouldn't. Right. And so then when we do have silence as complicity, then we have the danger of that overtaking. So, you know, I think with all the, we will have to see um, whether right. these um, candidates who are espousing Christian nationalism actually prevail. That's incredibly alarming because what could they do once they're in office? But just the use of the political rhetoric is dangerous and alarming as well. I was on an interfaith call just today, and I was very moved when a young rabbi said, around the Tree of Life anniversary, mm -hmm. he said, what meant so much to so many people in that synagogue is when Muslims came to gather around the church to defend, to defend the synagogue from its attacks. Mm -hmm. Muslims came to gather around the Tree of Life Synagogue, and how even they were offering to help pay medical bills of people who were attacked. This is the kindness yeah, the that you were talking about, yeah. and, and the counterpoint, counter message to what we're being heard. So, um, uh, Sam, you've written that the term Christian in white Christian nationalism is often a dog whistle or code language rather than an actual set of beliefs. How does white Christian nationalism use religion to hide race? Or how is whiteness uh, the hidden link that transforms the story into uh, a political vision? That the, they don't, they want to say, I'm not a Christian national. They sure don't want to say, I'm a white Christian national. But this, it's, it's there, it's the hidden link, I would say. So how, does, how, do you, how do you see that? How do you expose that? So part of this is, is something natural that we all do. 
uh, is that we, we take categories of, of people. And I, when I say we all do it, I mean this is just a human thing that we, we, tend, we tend to do to, to lump people into, into categories together by association of, of how we think of them. So if I were to ask you to close your eyes, I do with my, this with my students in my sociology of religion classes. I have them close their eyes and I, I say, okay, uh, I'm going to say some religious words, Hindu, uh, Buddhist, um, Muslim, Southern Baptist, and, and, and so uh, usually without, without, without uh, exception, uh, they all admit uh, that, that when I said those religious words, they often, they didn't just think a blank face. They saw a raced face. They saw, when I said Hindu, they thought of an Indian person, Buddhist, an Asian person, Muslim, maybe somebody from the Middle East and Southern Baptist, they thought of a white person. It is because uh, religion in the United States and elsewhere is, is racialized. We tend to associate groups with, with different ethnic backgrounds or different racial backgrounds based on geography, based on history and those kinds of things. We have found experimentally uh, this is actually a really common phenomenon among white Christians, pro- primarily because our religious our religious institutions are segregated. Uh, most of you go to a uh, most of us, uh, those of us who attend church, uh, are attending religious communities that are that tend to be segregated, where people who look like us live in our side of the tracks, uh, think like us, talk like us, and that's uh, that's most Americans. So, the reason this has become this becomes a powerful thing, and we've de- actually demonstrated this experimentally, uh, is is those, those connections can become so implicit and so, and so closely connected that oftentimes referencing uh, one of those identities uh, implies the other one, and it makes people think about the other one. So let me give you an example. We, we did an experiment with a group of white Christians where we exposed them to different kind of narratives. We gave them different articles, and they were randomly assigned to these things. And, uh, and we told uh, this group of white Christians, we gave them several narratives. One was about Christians being persecuted. Another one was about white people being persecuted. Another one was about black people being persecuted. And we found that when white Christians read uh, this article about uh, white people being persecuted, it, it made them also think Christians were being persecuted as well. And when we told them, gave them this article about Christians being persecuted, it made them think white people were being persecuted as well. Now, why is that relevant to our political situation now? Well, if I'm a savvy politician and I'm speaking to a white conservative Christian audience that I know is making those connections, then I never have to say white at all. I can just keep on hammering this idea that mm-hmm. Christians are persecuted. Christians are under mm-hmm. attack. Our way of life is under attack. Uh, the anti-Christian left, the godless, atheist, socialist, woke left is coming for your, for, for your God, for your rights, for your religious freedom. And I have talked about religion, but I have also implied all of these other things. Does that make sense? This is how, this is, this is how nefarious uh, white Christian nationalism as a political strategy can be because I can keep on hammering this idea of anti-Christian persecution uh, and who America really belongs to, Christians like us, when I am implying to these audiences white again and again. So uh, it is actually a very powerful, it, it actually goes even deeper than dog whistle is a good word for it because it, 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 it signals to this group. Uh, but I, I often don't think these people are knowing they're even being signaled. Uh, I think it, it, it could actually work more like a trigger, like a winter soldier kind of trigger. Like you have been, you have, I, have, I have given the code words and you have been activated uh, to respond in this prescribed way with, with, with fear of the racial other, with, with uh, xenophobia, with Islamophobia, with the fear of Black Lives Matter or Colin Kaepernick or whoever. Uh, that just because you have used this kind of like charged religious language now, I think in racial terms, and that uh, I think is the a big danger with how this this kind of rhetoric, this kind of anti this Christian persecution rhetoric, is being uh, used to stoke fear, not just against religious others, but against racial others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the dog whistle uh, uh, means we got to name what Bishop Curry was saying. Mm-hmm. Name this is white Christian nationalism, right? Not just Christian nationalism. So we've got to give name to the dog whistle 
that's there because it's 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 core, uh, and and also it's reflecting the clear political vision and tactics that are going on now. So name it as you were saying. So back to to Amanda, World, White Christian Nationalism showed up on January six. I mean, we were many of us were quite struck by. Uh, you know, placards and signs and uh, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. And they prayed on the floor of the Senate after they took it over. <laughs> so uh, what do you see in all that and what have you seen since? Uh, we had, we had uh, Jamie Raskin here on these chairs a while ago and the Genesis Committee is talking about all of this going on and they haven't really addressed directly this religion question. But we saw all that going on. So how do you interpret that from what you saw? And what do you see going forward now post-January 6th? Yeah. Well, like you and like probably most people in this audience, you know, in addition to the horror of seeing what was going on at the Capitol on January 6th, it was only intensified to see symbols of my faith being used to attack democracy in Jesus's name. Um, And so that Seeing that, and we had already been working at Christians Against Christian Nationalism, we at BJC, working with our partners at the Freedom From Religion Foundation, worked together um, with contributors uh, like Sam Perry to put out a report that details um, all of the instances of Christian nationalism that we could find, not just on January 6th, but in the many events that led up to January 6th. And I think that's what's often missing in the conversation about Christian nationalism in January 6th is how this ideology really worked to work this group into a place that would lead them to take these previously unthinkable actions of actually attacking the Capitol and trying to to Mm -hmm. interfere with the election results using deadly force when they needed to. Uh, and I, this report is available at christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org, free um, downloads. And we did a, an event to talk about this earlier this year, and it instantly got the attention of Congress, including the January 6th committee. And so a group of us, including um, Jim and, and Bishop Curry, we signed a letter, we sent it to the January 6th committee and asked them to study Christian nationalism and what impact it had in bolstering and intensifying that that attack on the Capitol. Because what we found is that it worked to unify a disparate group of people. There are a lot of different people who came to the Capitol that day, for, and they were some of them were from extremist groups like Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, and some of them were everyday Americans who got on a plane to fly there. What, how did they all come together? Mm-hmm. Christian nationalism helps explain why they did what they did. And so I think, you know, Christian nationalism alone cannot explain what happened on January 6th. But we will not understand what happened on January 6th until we have a thorough accounting of Christian nationalism. So the committee has had a lot on their plate, including new evidence that came to light. And because of their investigation, the investigation's ongoing. But I really do hope that the committee will address Christian nationalism directly. And I hope, I think there is one thing we haven't talked about yet, but I think there is a concern on some people's parts um, that to attack Christian nationalism or to challenge Christian nationalism is in some way to challenge Christianity. And we hope that Christian voices can help say, no, not at all. You know, we think that you need to address Christian nationalism if we are going to have 
a strong Christian witness. And so we need more Christians, including Christian lawmakers, who are willing to take on Christian nationalism. Clearly, if there was a religious undergirding to January 6th, it was this. It was white Christian. It was, it was Christian placards and signs that made many of us just feel stunned and, and deeply uh, sad and ashamed. But there were no, was no other religious undergirding. It was this. And I think the committee is nervous about talking about religion in that political context for fear of it seeming divisive or attacking. So it's back to what Bishop Curry said. It's the question, this is my question for you. Is this Christian? Uh, is this Christianity? Is this, uh, you and I talk about the need for a counter message. We can't just say white Christian nationalism is wrong, it's a threat, it's bad, let's all be against it. Because uh, that falls into the old binaries. So how do we do a counter message where, no, this is not Christianity. This is something else, but it's not that. Uh, and that's why I like to focus on the gospel text. It's almost like, here are the texts, right? Here are these iconic texts that we all know. You know these texts. And end the conversation with, do we believe it or not? If we believe it, we can't do this stuff. If we don't, let's say we don't. But then you can say, I don't believe those texts. So as you wrestle with this counter message, uh, how do we you know, go through the yellow pages? But the Gospels, I love that, fingers there. How, how, do we get them, how do we get that out? That's more than education, like you said. It's really, it's really pastoring. You're the pastor of your church. It's, it's formation. Mm -hmm. It's spiritual formation, mm -hmm. not just education. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, 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 it. The reality is for, now I'm just dealing with Christians now. I mean, let me just stay there. I, you know, I've, I've, I've been ordained over 40 years now. Um, I'm not as old as Jim Wallace, but I mean, I've been ordained for 40 years. But, but and, and I, I must say that I, I'm not sure that I have effectively over those 40 years, and I think I've done some, I know I've done good, I'm not putting myself down, but I don't know that we have, but I'll speak for myself, effectively formed or helped as midwives to form the people who have been committed to our charge mm -hmm. as pastors, mm -hmm. to form, to let, as St. Yeah. Paul says, so that Christ is formed in them. Yeah. And so that their lives, our lives, actually reflect his life. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's where we've fallen short. Yeah. And I, I own that myself, um, but not stop there. Now the work is to actually engage the kind of formation mm -hmm. that, that a counter narrative right. that actually is a narrative of, of what Christianity is about. Um, I mean, when we did Reclaiming Jesus, I mean, the truth is we were evangelical, we were mainline Protestant, we were Roman Catholic. Um, I can't remember if we had any Orthodox there. And we, we spanned the spectrums, yeah. I mean, in that room. But we were able to sit down and say, we can agree that this is what Jesus is about. Yeah. And it was pretty substantial. Now, if th that kind of, if, if an ecumenical group of Christians can say, okay, we're liberal, we're conservative, there were Republicans in there, Democrats, you name an issue, we we're probably going to disagree on a whole lot. But the fact that there was a common core, yeah. you know, we talk about that in academia sometimes, there actually is a core 
um, of Christianity, that if we lift it up and help folk begin to live in that and engage that as what Christianity is, that becomes the counter narrative in and of yeah, itself right. when it is effectively lived and proclaimed. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I just think that's that's how you do it. Uh, you know, the thing is, uh, something else struck me. I mean, Amanda said, you, I am struck. I mean, t- tomorrow is the anniversary mm-hmm. of Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. Um, the power of language. Mm-hmm. And the danger of implicitly violent and exclusionary language Mm -hmm. coded in acceptable forms. Mm -hmm. That is that's seditiously dangerous Mm -hmm. because innocent people get fooled. And that's and it's harder to counter that, although a counter narrative does it. But sometimes that's where that has to be named. That that when you're really talking about excluding folk, when you're really talking about hurting folk, when you're really talking about discriminating against folk, when you're really when when that's really what's going on, that has to just be named Um, and named with love uh, because you're better than that. I'm better than that. We're better than that. But that's got to be named. And um, anyway, I'm I'm just saying that you conjure that up, that we do have. I mean, the the, it is not an accident. I was was at uh, Mother Emanuel. I guess it was last year, mm-hmm. the anniversary right. um, of the killings there. Um, and literally, I went from there um, to, to Birmingham, where at an Episcopal mm-hmm. church, mm-hmm. folk had gotten. I mean, w- one day was one with yep. one another. The, the young man who was there, Liz Eaton from the yep. ELCA, was there with us. The young man who did that, now he had a lot of issues. There's a lot going on, so it's not just a simple thing. But part of what motivated him or catalyzed him or triggered him or whatever was language of taking America back and making it a Christian nation again. It was. I grew up in both the North and the South. And in the North part is Buffalo, home of the Buffalo Bills who are on a winning streak at the moment. But you never know where they last. But um, but I grew up not far from that Topps grocery store. Used to ride my bike by there. The guy who did that was triggered Again, by this same rhetoric, this same languaging. Uvalde, a similar thing has been documented that there was this language of violent language. Robert McAfee Brown years ago taught us Mm -hmm. about violent language begets violence and do it in subtle, insidious ways. Mm -hmm. And that's where it becomes dangerous, as you say. And and we've got to counter that. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have got to counter that and name it. It's got to be named and then help folk move beyond that and say, now here's what Christianity is about. Mm-hmm. And here's, you know, that's, anyway, I'll stop. But... No, following up. I don't even remember what your question was, but no. that, that's good. <laughs> Follow, that's the right question. <laughs> following up, uh, you answered the question. Following up on that, uh, Sam, you, I was struck, you called white Christian nationalism the San, San Andreas fault of American politics. Mm-hmm. And you end your book, Flag on the Cross, must read again, with a warning. Right, that January 6th is not the end. We could see another violent power grab, larger and more violent than the first, which could bury American democracy for at least a generation. So, do you think another event like that could be on, on the horizon or something even more successful? Um, I think to the to the extent that political leaders are comfortable using that kind of divisive yep. uh, reactionary rhetoric, uh, this us versus them, that we are no longer 
uh, Americans who, who share common values, but we are. And, and in fact, we're, we're actually seeing something like this. A political scientist named Paul Jupe, uh, who's done some phenomenal work, he's doing some work on Christian nationalism uh, right now, and he's looked at how Christian nationalism corresponds to things like acceptance of violence, acceptance mm-hmm. of violence against other political violence. And he found that when, when Christian nationalism is combined with things like apocalyptic language and belief, a belief that, that, that we as a, as, a, as, a, as a world, as a culture, as, as a nation are headed towards uh, some kind of a, a apocalyptic uh, Armageddon-like battle between good and evil, um, that those two things combined together uh, contribute to the acceptance of political violence, which makes complete sense. Because on the Christian nationalism side, you've got this idea that something has been taken from you wrongly. And on the other side, you've got this idea that the stakes are so high uh, that this is not just about Democrats versus Republicans. It's not about who won the, le- the latest election cycle and how'd you do in the midterms. Uh, it is literally uh, God versus Satan, angels versus demons. And that's the kind of rhetoric we're seeing. So the Reawaken America tour uh, and, and other, other, other speakers like Roger Stone. Roger Stone has gone on record several times in public speeches to say that this is not about Democrats and Republicans. This is about angels and demons. This is about uh, if we lose, we plunge the nation to a thousand years of darkness. Now, think about you sitting in the pews and you sitting and listening to that kind of rhetoric. What links to which, uh, what are the links to which you would go? Uh, to, to prevent America from doing that. I mean, uh, of course, that would, that would stoke that kind of partisan violence. So uh, I think to the extent that political actors are comfortable using that kind of rhetoric and language uh, to divide, to up the stakes, and to say that this isn't just about you know, political victories, this is actually uh, some kind of a religious, mm-hmm. or, or, or God loses if we lose. Um, of course, I mean, I think you're setting yourself up for, for, for the kinds of conditions. Will it necessarily result in, in violence? I think it's a combination of conditions that leads to that. Uh, but I think you are certainly setting the ideological table for that to happen. So we've talked about some very tough things tonight. This isn't just our topic for this month. Next month, we'll move on to the next. This is with us. It's deep <coughs> in us. So, but I want to end on a... a a bit of hope here. So, Bishop Curry, your job is to bring yeah. hope. You know, that's what you do. Is, is so. what? Bring hope. Bring, bring hope. hope. Oh. Yeah, there you go. I, I mean, I, 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 I've read St. Augustine, and I know about human... I've read Calvin. I know about human depravity. I know about the depths of sin and all the decision to... I know all that stuff. And I've seen it. Yeah. But I also know what I believe. And I don't believe in, on the evidence of anything that Michael Curry has. But I believe that Jesus was killed by an empire for doing good. And I believe he rose from the dead. <laughs> now, if I didn't believe that, then I'd have, a, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I would, I don't know how I'd navigate it, but I believe that. And I believe like I heard Desmond Tutu once say, He said it a lot, that because I believe that, I believe that good will triumph over evil and that love will win over hate. But it will not happen, as Dr. King said, on wheels of inevitability, Mm -hmm. that if we would mobilize love and that we can, that there is nothing, there is no power and I'm not talking about people now. No power of destruction, of hatred, of violence, of bigotry that can stop that. 
For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of a nation. Thank you all.